Hello, everyone, and welcome to Madness to Magic and my podcast, I'm with Crazy, a Love Story. I'm your host, Paulina Milana. I'm the author of several books, all of which tell stories that I hope help to inspire, enlighten, heal, maybe give you permission to have a good cry, and maybe even a good laugh about all things crazy. For those who don't know my personal story, I grew up surrounded by madness, raised by a mom who was diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia, and then becoming primary caregiver, not only to her, but to my little sister, also diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia. Keeping it secret and being ashamed of the insanity that had taken root in my family tree is what nearly did me in. Spoiler alert, it didn't. I journeyed on, and what an incredible ride it's been. So for anyone listening who is struggling with their own mental health or that of a loved one, this podcast is for you. Know that you aren't alone. Your life isn't just about the cray-cray and your story isn't finished. I'm With Crazy, A Love Story is where we can come together to share our stories and to realize that there's magic to be found in whatever madness we may be experiencing. I know it to be true, and I hope so will you. So let's get to today's episode. I'm so excited to have our guest today, Marin Sardi. Marin is an award-winning published author and essayist. Her work has appeared in numerous journals, including Tin House and The Rumpus. Her memoir, The Edge of Every Day, Sketches of Schizophrenia is a gorgeous, heartbreaking, brilliant labyrinth into her own experiences with mental illness that fractured her family, with schizophrenia claiming both her mother and brother. An excerpt was published on the New Yorker website, and we're going to put the link below so that you all can read it. Welcome, Marin. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. So tell me something. Um, I we share a bit in common because for you it was your mom and your brother, and for me it was my mom and my sister. So it's kind of um, you know we may think that these things are anomalies, but the more people I talk to, the more <laughs> it's not. It kind of um, it's almost in some of our DNAs, right? So. I wanted to just kind of open up with you so that a lot of the listeners already know kind of my story, but they may not know yours. And I thought I'd give you just a little opportunity to share what your story is. If if, if you don't mind, we start there. Absolutely. No problem. Um, my story involves um, mental illness, specifically mostly schizoaffective disorder, which is a form of schizophrenia that involves uh, symptoms of both schizophrenia and of bipolar disorder, um, which has a long history in my family. And um, I trace back through the generations to some degree, but most notably for me, my mother lived with it 
um, and did not uh, receive treatment for it for most of the 35 years um, that I that I knew her until she passed away last year. And then my brother also um, developed the illness and he was more officially diagnosed with it. Um, and again, was in and out of treatment, but largely went untreated. Um, and uh, he he died several years ago um, uh, by suicide, which was connected to his illness. Um, so my book kind of goes back into my family history and looks at the various ways that the illness touched my life and touched our lives and shaped us as people. Um, and it also talks about uh, my my love for and my relationships to my mom and my brother and my efforts to help them. Um, and uh, I think I'll stop there. I don't want to give any more away. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, you know, what, what I will say um, strictly about the book and the stories. So, so I love to read and I love memoir and I love also reading essays. And this book is so brilliantly put together because while the entire book is a an A to Z kind of story, right? There's a whole arc, et cetera. Each chapter could stand on its own because it's done as essays. And some of those essays so hit home for me. And what I thought um, I would do first is what you spoke of regarding kind of your mom going undiagnosed, so too did mine for a long time until finally, you know, she, my mom even had a couple of um, actual brain surgeries because they were thinking it was physical. Um, mm -hmm. In those days, yeah, they didn't, it, it wasn't, it wasn't the first thing they went to, right? That there's some kind of psychological kind of issue. Um, the thing that I did want to just touch on with you before we really get into nitty gritty of stories is, um, is word choice. And the reason I wanted to ask you this is because my uh, company is called Madness to Magic. And in great part, it's called that because not only the mental illness that I kind of um, experienced, right, as a caregiver, but also the madness that comes with that as a caregiver, right? And mm -hmm. you, I just want to read this little part from your book. Um, for anyone who has the book, it's on page 29. But you said in here, it occurs to me that mental illness and madness are not the same thing. Mental illness is a set of brain malfunctions with psychological effects like paranoia, delusions, insomnia. Madness is a state of incoherence, paradoxical or nonsensical or untenable. Madness sometimes arises from mental illness, but it may arise in other ways as well. This distinction is important because mental illness is not contagious, but madness often is. So I love that distinction. And maybe we kind of talk about the growing up with this kind of um, secret, right, of mental illness and the essay that you have in this book that is simply brilliant. Where, where's my little note? Ah. The conversations with family. Oh my word. Because this podcast really is a place for caregivers to go, right? A safe mm -hmm. place. I would love for you to speak to kind of what I just read about mental illness versus madness and about 
your essay on conversations with family of, you know, who knew, what did they choose to do? Like just a bit of, you know, keeping it secret from the outside world, all of that. I, I would love for you to speak about that as well as the essay about the egg and about mm -hmm. how your life, I mean, there's a line in here too. Our life with her, you're speaking about your mother, our life with her became our hidden life, the story under the story. Could you kind of just shed a little light on growing up with mental illness in the family and then the associated madness, right? That comes from that. Uh, peripherally. Absolutely. And I love that you brought the essay about the eggs into that because that was where my mind went because that for me, I think is so fundamental. Like that essay was where I finally was able to really get at and articulate what was so maddening about my childhood to some degree. Um, and, you know, as I was writing this, I wanted to... I wanted to not cover over any of the difficulties that I faced, but I also wanted to be clear that I wasn't trying to blame my mother for being ill. Um, and as I delved into that distinction, I started seeing other distinctions opening up and, 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 it, you know, my mom wasn't the source of all the problems at all. She had an enormous problem that completely reshaped her life and mine. But I began to see the ways that the ways that the problem was handled or not handled had an enormous impact on on how it affected me as a child. Um, and I think central among those was that as a child, children's you know, I started asking myself, myself, like, how do children know what's real? What is a child's relationship to reality? What was my relationship to reality? And and I'm certain, sure we're all quite familiar with the the sort of play playland imagination of children. Children's relationship to reality is is somewhat unformed, right? And there's a magic in that, and there's a beauty in that. Um, but for me, it also that became dangerous because when I didn't have external, I didn't have adults to help me find my way between reality and non-reality, that was extremely difficult. And, and I'm grateful I did have my father as one parent who was, uh, my parents divorced, right? As my mother was developing her illness severely, she, she became extremely ill when I was about nine or 10. And before that she was functional, she was essentially well, um, or at least to all appearances. It, yeah, and she definitely was, lived a normal life um, as a healthy person. Um, and so when that started to change, I lost kind of the anchors that children rely on to tell them, to guide them in terms of what is real and what is not. Um, and uh, and so when I would go back in and remember those times of my mother's illness, I found myself sort of falling into this place of feeling like I don't know what's real. And, and that her inability to know what was real became my inability to know what was real. Um, and I think that's a very important thing for people to understand about children who have a parent with a mental illness is that they, they don't get that reassurance about reality and, and that it, 
And that was a contagious thing for me, right? That was a place of contagion, but it wasn't like I caught my mom's schizophrenia. It was like, there are things I needed to learn that I didn't have someone to teach them to me. Um, so I think that was at the core of that distinction then that, that I began to make between mental illness and madness. Mm -hmm. um, and certainly the absence of other adults who could have helped me to navigate my way through that was a big part of that. That conversations with family essay, um, I, I love that you pointed that one out. Um, just for, for listeners who maybe haven't uh, read it, in that essay, that essay is composed entirely of quotes from family members that I interviewed. So it's entirely their words, thinking about and reflecting on my mother's illness um, as they had tried to interpret and understand it over the years. Um, and I put all, I put, you know, a whole series of their quotes together to kind of create a picture of what the family culture was when I was growing up. Um, and going back to language, you know, I think a takeaway for me anyway with that was that people lacked the vocabulary to even describe what was happening. They didn't have the words. And in the absence of words, you end up with an absence of concepts. Um, and it was just this very vague, very sort of generalized sense of something being not all right. Um, combined with nobody like what I realized when I was doing those interviews, which literally had never struck me before in, you know, 30 years was that nobody ever asked me what it was like to live with my mom. So after my parents divorced, I lived with my mom, my siblings and I, my brother and sister and I lived with my mom half the time and with my dad half the time. Um, and so I lived this totally bifurcated life. Um, and literally not even my dad. I mean, my dad would ask us in a general sense, like, how's everything going over there? Is everything okay? You know, but he didn't ask about specifics and nobody else did either. <laughs> and so that also was a source of madness of I had witnessed, I had grappled with my, my brother and sister and I had to cope with our mother being floridly psychotic all the time for years. And nobody knew it. Or if they did, they were pretending it wasn't that, you know, they just wanted to believe it wasn't a thing. Um, and, and so it was a little bit shocking to me to realize the extent of their ignorance as well. Um, and, and to ask myself, why were they so ignorant? And, and partly, you know, it came back to, well, partly they wanted to be, um, not entirely, but, you know, I think that that's a takeaway. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, again, the the similarities are are really kind of shocking because my mother um, lived a full life, and then when I was about ten, she suddenly became ill. Um, so, and my father, who actually tried to kind of keep the family together, and you know, we we lived by a kind of quasi Sicilian rule, you know, Cosa Nostra, which was what happened in the family stayed in the family, right? And others mm -hmm. didn't know. And I love that you speak of how others, maybe they even saw things, right? We know for sure in our family, like others outside of the family saw things, but, but A, you really don't want to get involved. You don't mm -hmm. want to know, right? You don't. Mm -hmm. And, you know, let's be honest, if you have a broken bone, if you even have cancer, you know, at the end of the road, either you get cured or you're going to pass on, right? I mean, it's it's one or the other. 
in this case, when it comes to mental illness or especially schizophrenia, schizoaffective disorder, there is no end. There's no cure, right? There's right. no, I mean, there's a, there can be an end, right? But sure. there is no cure. And I think that is what makes it scary and what people don't want to get involved with, even those of us who are part of it, right? Mm-hmm. I remember too, in in my first book, when I uh, started to write The S Word, it started out as a book about um, pointing fingers, blame, right? Because I was going back into childhood and everything that I had lost and the authority figures and the adults who let me down, right? I was a kid. That's how it started. Going through the 10 freaking years it took me <laughs> to get it down, um, it really turned it turned my attentions to the fact that every single person, not not excusing anybody, right? But every single person was doing the best the best they could mm-hmm. in that specific situation, right? Your mother, your brother, your father, the people outside. Same with my kind of inner circle, and then the ones outside. So I guess just to stop for a minute here and say, all right, so then what what are things that you know maybe today right because that that was several years ago maybe today that people could start to practice to to be a little more involved if they see something or do you have anything that like comes top of mind on you know if others see this in others or like what could be done asked etc That is a great question and a great thing that you bring up. And certainly in my book as well, in the process of writing it, I found myself turning to look at the broader culture and sort of the history of uh, mental illness and how it has been dealt with as a way to begin to really see what forces were acting on my whole family and shaping how they could or couldn't find ways to address it, right? Um, And I think that I am encouraged to see that the culture is changing, right? And that people are talking about it more and learning about it more. Um, And it's not, I, I mean, such a thing in my family on my mother's side was that it was so shrouded in shame, um, and and it's lovely to see that breaking away. Um, but I do think that in this transition that we're in, it leaves people wondering, like, what what can I do? You know, if I want to do something, um, and I mean, I don't think there's one answer that would apply to everyone. But I do think that um, a lot has changed in terms of what you can ask of people directly. Like for me. It, it was never okay to talk to my mom about the possibility that she had a mental illness um, because she, I think, had always had so much of a felt so much of a need to keep it a secret in some way. And, and certainly she didn't she didn't agree that she had a mental illness. But I do think that one of the doors that has been opened is that because we're breaking down the shame associated with having mental illness, that if someone is dealing with a mental health problem, um, it's much easier for someone nowadays to to say, okay, um, 
I want, you know, I want to share with you that I have this mental health problem. We can talk about it because back when my mom, back in the eighties, my mom, I, I, I don't, I think that there was a huge barrier there for her. And I think there was for my brother as well. Um, you know, in the late nineties, early two thousands, when he, uh, when his illness began to set in. Um, and so for me, it comes. So when I think about what it means to be a caregiver in the context of mental health, so much about it, so much of it for me is about the intangibles, um, especially like for my mother, you know, I was a caregiver, a primary caregiver for the last decade of her life, along with my younger sister, but we didn't live with her. We didn't you know, most of that, we weren't doing anything for her and she wasn't seeing a doctor. Um, and so much of it had to do with having a trusting relationship, establishing a relationship, maintaining a close relationship and a dynamic in which she felt safe being open about things, or she felt safe in the moments when she didn't at times to let us make a decision for her. And I will say my mom never really felt safe ever. She had her paranoia was very much like persecutory delusions that like shadowy figures were after her. Um, and she usually trusted my sisters and my sisters and me. But but there were times when even that when she got too terrified for that. Um, and so that trust was always limited and shaped by her illness. But the difference between the level of trust that I was able to establish with her compared to what it would have been if I rarely spoke to her was dramatic, you know? And, and I came to understand, I think that in being connected and staying connected and listening and caring and doing all the things that we think of as being a good friend to anyone, regardless of their the state of their mental health, that I think makes as big of a difference. <laughs> um, and, and it's it's certainly not going to solve everything, you know, but but I felt that that is something that is historically, I think, been ignored. Um, mm -hmm. and, and you know, historically, a lot of the um, agency has been taken away from people who have mental illnesses. and I I didn't want to do that. And it was very hard because my mom sometimes made decisions that were directly harmful to herself unintentionally, you know, um, and I didn't have the power often to come in and do what I wanted to do. But I also needed to respect her and let her do what she needed to do. Um, so to some degree, it was an impossible thing, right? <laughs> and it was always a fine line between trying to impose my will and trying to respect hers. Um, and I don't think I always got it right, but I always tried and I always kept coming back and I always told her I loved her and she always told me, thank you. And we built it. We built on that, you know? <laughs> yeah, I love that. I, you know, I always think to myself, you know, in, in my own situation, I had two very different individuals. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I had my mother who was uh, super paranoid and her um, her thoughts were that her own family was trying to kill her. So it was kind of kill or be killed. So we would go to sleep at night. She would, you know, turn on the knobs of the oven, scream about wanting to blow us all up. It was very a very frightening time, right? My little sister, on the other hand, 
was more of a benevolent, I'll just call it benevolent, um, uh, paranoid schizophrenic who she had delusions of grandeur. So she thought that, you know, like I, I, I tell the story, which always makes me even laugh, but I was going into her, the facility that had her at the time and, you know, going through lockdown or not lockdown, the, um, the metal detectors, blah, 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 to get in there. I mean, it was a pretty secure place. And when I got in, my little sister came bounding down the hallway and she was like, look at this. And she waved her hand um, across this painting and said, did you see that? And I'm like, see, see what? She was like, I just changed its colors. And here, here, I just wrote this. And she handed me um, a book and I looked down and it said the Holy Bible. And my only response was catchy title. Like there, <laughs> there were moments like you have to, it's not a, it's not a cookie cutter illness. It's not a one size fits all. And why would it be? I mean, I, I think of how we give humans who have no illness, let's just say, right? Visible or, or, or major illness. Mm-hmm. We give them the luxury of saying you are an individual, right? Mm-hmm. And yet it seems that the minute that someone gets that label slapped onto them, right? Of mental illness, schizophrenic, whatever it is, mm-hmm. suddenly that's all you become. Mm-hmm. And we forget, right? Mm-hmm. That each person has their own, you know, desires, their own human emotions, their own, that are separate and aside from this illness. Yes, they often are influenced by it, but they themselves are just like us, right? There's no, you know, I, I often think of that um, scene in the, uh, uh, when Harry met Sally, the, the famous, you know, diner scene where she's mimicking a climax. I don't know if you remember yeah, this. I remember that. Okay. And I always think to myself in that scene, she tells the waiter, I'll have the peas, but I don't want them touching the mashed potatoes. And I don't want them, like, it's a whole big scene, right? Yeah. When she does it, it's cute. It's eccentric, right? If my little sister or anyone with a mental illness or someone who is less than quote unquote in the eyes of society does it, suddenly they are outside of the norm, right? So it's, I mean, you bring up so many, um, so many great, great, things regarding this this unknown that is mental illness and i guess where i'd like to ask for your expertise or your thoughts now is when when we're talking the what is happening in the world perhaps with more and more frequency things like shootings right or um or attacks or you know um someone with a mental illness killing a family member or whatever it is right i i i wonder if you might have some thoughts related to that concept that i know i always felt which was there but for the grace of god go i because a lot of people today there's always that Monday morning quarterbacking, right? Something oh, yeah. happens, right? And especially when it's a someone with a mental illness, suddenly everyone's like, well, why didn't you see it? Why didn't you do this? Why didn't you put them there? And and you just said it on how there is this balancing act of what you can do, right? And intervene versus stepping back, right? Either legally or, or whatever. 
But can you speak a bit to the whole concept of what people seem to expect from family members of people with mental illness when a tragedy happens? Do you know what I'm I'm asking? Yeah. Like, yeah. I mean, I think the first thing that comes to my mind is that I just think that there is a profound ignorance about our own mental health care system. People have this idea that if someone needs help, you just go to somebody's office and put the wheels in motion and it happens. Like my family, my father, my sisters, myself, um, my grandparents, you know, relating to both my mom and my brother, did, went to extraordinary lengths to get the system to help us help them. And with very little success overall. And a, a lot of the reason for that is because is that both my mother and my brother were not particularly amenable to 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 receiving medical treatment through the medical establishment. And um, I do think some of the reasons for that were valid. Some of the reasons had to do with the nature of their illness. Um, uh, but I, I do think also they didn't like the way they were being treated, right? Um, so, you know, so my response to that kind of, like, as you say, Monday morning quarterbacking is where was the help? Like, first of all, I did everything I could. Second of all, no matter how much a family member knows about how much a, a risk there might be, if there's nothing they can do about it, there's literally nothing they can do about it. Um, if this, you know, you go, to, I've called the police like more, I don't know, seven, eight times to check on my mother, not because I think that she was a danger to someone else, but I thought that she was herself in danger as a result of her illness. And I tried to get things in place to prevent that from happening again. And I never could. The answer was always, you're not allowed to, you're not allowed to. There is so much that we're not allowed to do. And I understand the reason why we're not allowed to do those things. I don't agree with it all the time, but I certainly, you know, like I said, I try to respect my mother's right to her own autonomy. I always did. Um, but for people to come, you know, telling me what I should have done when they have absolutely no idea, A, what the system is, what the situation was, what I tried and or failed to do, then I just don't have time for that. Basically, <laughs> right. yeah. um, I mean, and I guess in terms of a public conversation, you know, what I'm always trying to sort of put forth is like, let's let's establish a system that that actually works, that works better, a system that works for the people who are dealing with the mental health problems and that also empowers the people who want to help them and empowers them themselves um, and is properly funded so that it can actually do what it purports to do, all these things. Yeah. Um, yeah. You yeah. spoke about that in your book, especially with your yeah. brother, where it's, you know, we have, I, you know, I kind of call it this catch and release, right? So when yeah. they're in crisis, right, they'll bring them in, they'll drug them up, they'll do whatever, right? Do the little cocktail mixes of all the different drugs and try to get them at some baseline. And then poof, they're gone. And there yeah. is no major follow-up there is in in part because they don't want it either right i mean it's you know i i liken myself to 
you know, my, my little sister would especially stop taking her meds the minute she felt better, right? Mm-hmm. Myself, if the doctor gives me a vial of pills and there's like 12 and he's like, take it until they're done, right? Because, you know, I, what, I stop at eight, you know? So why, why are we so different? We're really not, right? It's just that the consequences are greater, right? If you have a, a major mental illness. I, I wonder when, when you speak, you had kind of said, something that that brought to mind what I kind of dealt with is because I lived with both my mother and my sister and no one on the outside kind of knew. And so on the outside, I was kind of like this, you know, the little soldier, you know, performing at work and doing everything that I could, right? Even though I slowly was descending myself into madness, right? Not mental illness, but madness. I was losing <laughs> losing my shit, so to speak, um, mm-hmm. caring for them. I I think you had mentioned how, you know, you were calling the cops all these times, et cetera. There's that constant worry that, that really is all consuming in your life. If you Mm -hmm. let it be, and, and quite often you can't do anything, but so I guess for me, I've been quite vocal, um, especially in my writing at the, that blurred boundary between Yes, loving that person and yes, wishing that they would just fall off the face of the earth or hating them or there is that as a human being, you only can take so much. And so for those of us who are caregivers of people with mental illness, I think there's that um, shame in feeling those feelings of, I wish you would just go away. You know what I mean? Or, right? So yeah. can you speak a bit to that? Um, because I, I will tell you this, my audience has been equally vocal in private to me. Oh, thank you so much for like actually saying that it's okay to feel those terrible feelings about your loved one, but there's still that it's not okay to come out and say, hey, you know what? I'm a caregiver of someone with mental illness and I I too am struggling with this. And there are times when I have terrible thoughts. I wish I didn't have them, but mm-hmm. the fact that I do, it's okay. It's understandable. So do, do you mind like kind of speaking a little bit to that? No, not at all. And And I think, I mean, I think that so much of the shame associated with having those feelings has to do with sort of an implied, uh, corollary of if I, if I feel like sometimes like I wish that this would just all be over, um, then what that means, then that's that saying is that my mom doesn't deserve to continue to live. My brother doesn't deserve, you know, uh, my love, my care. Um, but, but I don't, I don't think that's it at all. And for obviously caregivers are helping because they're choosing to do that. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and I certainly had those feelings. Um, and and I think that denying those feelings is very damaging because those feelings for me, I can speak about myself, uh, were, were related to having, I had post-traumatic stress disorder. 
as a result of having lived with my mother's psychosis and then also my brother developing schizophrenia. And it was already almost impossible for people to understand that those things could cause me to have post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, like the, that having loved ones with schizophrenia wasn't like um, an awful enough thing to right. cause PTSD or something. Um, and, and there was also, you know, I had, this had been my life since I was 10 years old. I never, I never had that opportunity, that freedom to grow up as a, as a normal kid in a, you know, in a normal environment and in which everything got to be about me until, you know, I was old enough that I didn't want it to be all about me anymore. Right. Um, so, so there was so much that was just brutal that I was dealing with internally um, that to deny myself acknowledging, you know, the, the permission to acknowledge that, yes, I just wanted to go away wow. would have been sort of telling myself that none of the suffering that I had done was real, which I think then just you go farther down that madness vortex of like, nothing is real. What is real? I don't know what's real, you know? Um, and so I, I think it, it's a real act of self-preservation when a person can acknowledge to themselves how they feel about that. Um, and also to distinguish, you know, I love my mom. I miss my mom. She died a year ago. I miss her so much. I miss her all the time. I do not miss her mental illness. I'm glad it's gone. And I know that to some degree that she was inseparable from her illness, but also there there were ways that she was perfectly separate from her illness you know it, it's that it's a fuzzy thing and so i i inhabit that fuzzy place mm -hmm. in which i give myself permission to feel both things at the same time and and to not conclude that just because i feel one negates the other mm -hmm. that's a really that's a that's an awesome point first off i i'm sorry about your mom passing a year it, it's still so fresh so new Thank and you. My mom, it's been many, many more years. I will say that as the years go on, I miss her even more. And I think it's because I really, so So with the second uh, memoir, Committed, in that book, that book is an epistolary memoir. So it is told all through the handwritten letters that they had left. Oh, and wow. it was fascinating because in doing the work the research for that book, seeing my mother's handwritten letters when she herself was in a psychotic episode and her writing things about how she felt no more joy, how she couldn't see her way out, how, you know, somebody help me. That is heartbreaking to actually know what that individual is going through right so so there's the there's the shame of how you yourself as a human feels right as the caregiver right because no longer are you in like you said it you know no longer are you uh the child who gets to make everything about themselves like from a very early age it's all caregiving right and so your your entire relationship shifts right so you've got that going on but then when you get older and you have the time, the perspective, that little bit of wisdom, hopefully that comes with age, right? And you look back and you realize that this person was suffering. 
I mean, suffering, you, you speak to it, especially heartbreaking with your brother and everything, you know, that he went through, which I think even took it up maybe a little more, like took it up a notch from your mom because he was dealing with the authorities. Right. And he, you know, just oh, a definitely. bunch of other things. Yeah. yeah. And the thing, the one thing that I, that just, Oh my God, you honestly, you, you had me, you had me after reading this, like just sitting there, just thinking, I think no one really understands this unless you have lived it. And, you know, I thanked you for even writing this because you, you spoke about how you constantly thought, you know, what did I do? What didn't I do? Did I do enough? Did I, right? And I think it was your, um, your friend, was it your friend or your, my friend, the therapist, yeah, once told me there was nothing you could have said or done that would have changed anything. I think she meant it, but I still don't know if I think it is true. And I would like another chance to find out. Wow. Talk about powerful. Um, yeah, I, I just, I think to myself when you say, yes, give yourself the permission to feel it, mm -hmm. but also the, the awareness that person didn't ask for it either. And that person, right, is doing the best they can. What we what we come back to, right, full circle mm -hmm. here. But um, but anyway. And now, now, see, now I've twisted myself into like I'm. Now I just want to sit here and like think of all your gorgeous words and <laughs> and I don't I don't even know where where I want to. I have so many questions like surrounding me, and I'm like I just want to sit here for a while, which I don't think the the listeners would appreciate. But but is there is there anything that you kind of want to say to that point or anything that, you know, you wanted to make sure that you shared? I think what has been on my mind in the last year. So in the, in the two years leading up to my mother's death, she had pretty severe physical problems that were severe because of self neglect. Um, and so the last two years were very difficult for me. It was a lot of work for me, um, a lot of work on a practical level, but also just emotionally really taxing, really trying hard to get her in a position where she was going to be safe and comfortable until the end of her life came whenever that was going to be. Um, and, uh, and make sure that it, it was on her terms and she was happy with it, but that also she wasn't falling through the cracks. Um, and that was just completely completely taxing for me. Um, and what I've been thinking about lately is that I think it's easy to feel powerless. And as a caregiver, I think it's also easy to give your power away. Um, because I always felt the limits of my power so acutely both in terms of what we can do with schizoaffective disorder. And in the book, I, I, I sort of suggest that it's like a force of nature because that's what it felt like to me. Um, and, uh, but also in terms of like, you know, I didn't have the right to make decisions for my mom. And, but I think it was easy also to lose track of the power that I had. And, and one place where I did exercise my power unequivocally was in choosing to help her. 
Nobody forced me to help her. I didn't have to help her. And I was aware of that. And there was a point in that last couple of years where I sort of had a conversation with myself in which I said, do you, you know, if you, if you got to choose, you get to choose, what do you choose? And I realized I wanted to do this. I wanted to help her. That was my choice. That was in my control. I had all the power over that decision and I chose it. And so then I was able to go into it more from a headspace of this is what I'm choosing to do. How do I want to go about it? Mm -hmm. And it was still extremely difficult and frustrating and all of the things that had been before, but somehow I could breathe through them better, right? right. I, could, I could weather them better. Um, and I don't think I got all the way there. One thing I've noticed like in the time since she's been gone is sort of realizing the ways I think I, I wanted to get more to a fully complete place of being at peace with how things were. And I didn't get all the way there. And looking back, I think, well, part of me is like, I re just acknowledging I didn't get all the way there. You know, there are things that I that I look back on and I'm like, ooh, you know, I wish I hadn't gotten so mad at her that one time, you know, things like that. Um, but oh, I also I do that all the time. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, oh, my gosh, why was I such a shit? Like, I should yeah, know. You know? Yeah, I actually I, I brought that up with my husband a few months ago. I was sort of just dwelling on it. And he just looked at me and he was like, are you are you even serious right now? You did everything yes. for your mother and you're getting stuck on this one time you right. shouted at her, like, it's okay, you know? <laughs> like, <Yeah. laughs> and so that helps me feel a little bit better about it. Um, but I do feel like I wish I could have let go of being angry a little bit more because I did, I was always angry in the way of the 10 year old girl who suddenly didn't have anyone to take care of her, but had to try to survive amid all of this stuff like that 10 year old kind of surfaced a little bit in that last year you know um but I'm also like well of course you weren't going to do it perfectly and you know yeah I'll, maybe I'll that could have been easier on myself back then you know like maybe yes. in that last year I could have given myself a break or a two break. Yeah. <laughs> yeah 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 you know I, I love the um the uh, you know the infamous Maya Angelou, who has said, uh, you know, we did what we knew how to do. Now we know more, so we do better or something like that. I'm, right. sure, yeah. I'm matching right. up her quote, but yeah. for, for me, I will say, um, so for me, I, I was the reluctant caregiver uh, for, for many, many years, right? There was nobody else and nobody else knew. And if I wasn't there for my mom and sister. I didn't know what was going to happen. In it, it, it to start, it in my, you know, you talk about PTSD. In my <laughs> ever increasing maddening mind, because of what I was in, I thought to myself, "All right, I I don't want to be here. I don't want to do this. I'm the reluctant caregiver," and yet. I thought to myself, it wasn't fair to, to leave them, right? To abandon them. So in my um, not well mind at that time, I had come to the conclusion that I was going to take them out and myself with them. 
because oh. I thought, okay, so let's all go, right? I mean, that's fair, right? I mean, think about, think about the thought, right? Process yeah. it. Yeah. And had it not been for a serendipitous meeting with someone who ended up being my therapist for more than a decade, I would not have realized that it's not black or white. So, so in other words, for me, yes, I, I completely understand you had said to yourself, you know what, this is my choice, right? And for all caregivers who are listening to this, I love that, right? Where you're like, you know what, I can choose to leave, but I am choosing to actually care for them. I love that. For me, it was perhaps some of that, but also that it didn't have to be all or nothing. For me, it was like, because I had completely like abandoned myself, so to speak, in order to care for them, that and and the silence is what suffocates. That's what's going to kill you, right? You need to actually prioritize yourself. It's that whole thing of, you know, what do they tell you in the airlines? You know, put your oxygen mask on before helping someone else. It's all of that. And that was what ended up saving me. And so for those who are listening, I think just, I hope that just from hearing our stories, they kind of see that in their own situations, as unique as they may be, the underlying universality is self-care, right? Before being able to care for someone who has such a such a an overwhelming illness, right? Quite often. Would Absolutely. you agree? Yeah. yeah. And I'd actually like to come at that from the opposite side, because there is a sense in which my story is the opposite of yours, which is that when I was a young adult, I really sort of washed my hands with my mom for a while. I was oh. just like, I'm out of here. You you got this. You're on your own. Um, and, and actually, she was generally doing OK enough. Um, but uh, but I really just. And I, I realize now that that was an act of self-preservation on my part, right? I was I needed to take care of myself in a way that I had not been able to, um, and and prioritize myself. But but of course, at the time, I didn't experience in that in that way. And for a long time, I just looked back on that sort of decade of my life of I was being selfish, right? And I was and really felt awful about how I had sort of gone awol. And um, to some degree, like this this last decade of my mother's life, I realize now I was trying to compensate for having not been there before and being driven by the guilt from having not been there before. And so feeling like I had to do it perfectly the second time around, you know what I mean? Um, and that was not good for me either. And I wish that at the time I could have been able to just say to myself, I forgive my young self for running off and it worked out okay that I did that. You know, some other people were left holding the bag a couple of times and I feel bad about that. But, you know, I I also had to survive and and I did, you know, partly because I made that choice and whether it was the right choice or the wrong choice, it's okay that I made it. I was a kid, you know, um, and, I, and I don't, I don't have to do everything exactly right now just because I didn't do it then, you know? Yes, yeah, I love <laughs> that. Wow, wow. Okay, so um, only because I know we could go on and on and on. Yeah. And I do, you know, I do hope that you do come back one day and we have more conversation if you're up for it. Oh, absolutely. But, 
Awesome. Awesome. But, um, but is there anything you want to kind of leave our listeners with whether it's, you know, um, you know, one thing to take away if you are in this kind of a situation or if you're not, and you've never even kind of, uh, encountered anyone with mental illness, like, is there anything you want to leave our listeners with? Oh, wow. I mean, that's such a big (laughs) question. Um, Well, I mean, I guess I'll just sort of build on what we've already talked about and sort of where my mind has been at um, relating to my mom, which is, you know, I have in the past year remembered something that I forgot for a while, which is that I I can just go and have fun and and enjoy life sometimes. What? (laughs) I know, right? (laughs) I mean, and I think it's easy for caregivers to forget that mm-hmm. um, and realize and and to or to feel too guilty to to sort of partake of, you know, that forbidden fruit or something. Um, but it's so clear to me now that if I had done that a little more for myself, you know, in the decade leading up to my mother's passing, um, she would have been just she would have done just as well as she did (laughs) and I would have done better than I did you know in terms of how I was feeling and in terms of my own mental health and that that giving yourself joy and relaxation and fun does not take it away from somebody else it does not take anything away from somebody else um and so that's just a little nugget um, to throw in there at the end here. I don't think that was a little nugget. I think that was one huge gold rock. Um, (laughs) because I, I think, I think that's a great takeaway and, uh, so great that I think we're, we're going to close it for today on that. And I, I have so loved having you, um, today with us, look forward to you coming back. And on behalf of all of our listeners, thank you, thank you, thank you. And we will return again with another episode soon. Thank you so much. All right, fantastic. Thank you so much, Paulina. It's been great chatting with you. Yes, you too. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to Madness to Magic and my podcast, I'm with Crazy, a love story. I believe we're all here for a purpose. I know this is part of mine. Please share this podcast with anyone you think might benefit or who might have a story of their own to share. You can also visit me at madnesstomagic.com or paulinamilanawrites.com. Check out more of my stories, including info on my latest books. Hope to hear from you and to join forces with what I consider a unique caregiver tribe as we all learn to embrace all of ourselves to have compassion for others, and to come into our full power by the grace that is madness to magic. Until we meet again, I leave you with one of my favorite mantras, be bold and mighty forces shall come to your aid.